Well, thank you. What a joy to be back here again and uh, was able to make it over the grapevine without any problem. Uh, and I guess uh, uh, I was here uh, in 2017 and, and California also had rain that year too. So I think this is, uh, we're making this a habit. Hopefully this will uh, carry on with more blessings. Let's just pause and turn to the Lord again in prayer. Father God, we come before you and we ask, Lord, that you would, you would tune our hearts and minds to hear your word. We just sang about being lost in your love. What a thought that you, the creator, the ruler, the sustainer, the sovereign one over all the earth loves us. Teach us now from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17 is what we're going to look at this evening. I'm going to go ahead and read in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. 2 Timothy chapter... 3, beginning in verse 14, says this, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We come to this passage and we're looking at a passage uh, about Scripture. And I've entitled this message, The Sufficiency of Scripture, although this passage really could be, focuses on all kinds of aspects of Scripture. In this passage alone, we see the inspiration of Scripture, the canonicity of Scripture, the preservation of Scripture, and really the clarity of Scripture. We see the inspiration of Scripture because it says quite clearly in verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. The word there meaning breathed out. This is God's Word. This is not a collection of writings by mere men. This is God, the, the Creator, the ruler, the sustainer, uh, of all, the sovereign one over all the earth who has revealed himself in a book, a book written over 1,600 years or around 1,500 years and, and a book written by people from different geographic backgrounds, by people who were from uh, 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 lived at different times, different economic backgrounds. Some were shepherds, some were kings. One was a shepherd king. We have, we have a book that was written uh, and, and comes together in one story from beginning to end, the halfway point being Genesis chapter 3. Prior to Genesis 3, we have a perfect relationship with God and man. After Genesis 3, we're learning how to get that perfect relationship back between God and man. It's one story. It is inspired by God. The impossibility that the Bible could merely be words from men is evident it is the very word of God. As Paul was thankful for the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, he said this, You received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. This book claims to be the word of God. It is inspired. It is breathed out by God. We see the inspiration. We also see the canonicity. The canonicity. The canonicity is how do we know that the Bible is complete? How do we know that the canon or the measure for the, for the number of books that we have is complete? Notice in verse 16, it begins with the words, all Scripture. Now, just to summarize and not to get too off track from our, our focus on the sufficiency of Scripture, just to talk a little bit about the canonicity, we know that the 39 books of the Old Testament are in the canon of Scripture because Jesus affirmed them as Scripture. Luke 24, verse 27, it says, Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. 
the text that was used as scriptures and recognized by the Jewish synagogues at the time was a complete canon, had been for years and decades and uh, uh, more than a hundred years had been used and canonized. And so uh, by the time, and Jesus recognized and used those scriptures and affirmed them as God's word. And so we know that the 39 books of the Old Testament uh, are in the canon because Jesus affirmed them. We know that the 27 books of the New Testament are in the New Testament canon because Jesus authorized his apostles to write them. And you can trace every book and it has related to an apostle and has apostolic authority. And so because Lord, the Lord Jesus, who came, is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, authorized and recognized these books, we know that the canon of Scripture is complete. We also see in this passage the preservation of Scripture. Back in verse 14, it is written to Timothy, continuing the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them. There's this idea that that there was teaching that was passed down from generation to generation to generation. Um, In verse 15, the words are used, sacred writings. The sacred writings, the scriptures, were passed down from generation to generation. So we not only see the inspiration, the canonicity, but we also see the preservation of scripture. This is fascinating. Again, we 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 could talk about this all night, just thinking about how God has preserved his word. You say, well, we don't have the original manuscripts. We can be thankful we don't have the original manuscripts because if we did, somebody could take them and alter them and then actually change uh, you know, what, 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 could, you know, what are our understanding of Scripture. God in his wisdom made it so that we do not have these original manuscripts which, which would be worshipped. Well, how do we know that the manuscripts we have are reliable? Because we have thousands of copies And through a process of textual criticism, we can find out what the original manuscripts really said. You say, how do you do that? I'm I'm, going to give you a theological um, illustration here called the Aunt Martha's chocolate cake recipe theory. So the idea is if your Aunt Martha had a chocolate cake and everybody loved it, she had a secret recipe and she never traded it, never gave it to anybody... Um, and, and, uh, and so everybody loved it. And then one day Aunt Martha's dog eats her, uh, recipe. And, uh, so she's in trouble, but she had given it to one close friend and she goes to that friend and that friend's house burned down. So the recipe is lost, but apparently that friend had passed it on to eight other friends. Okay. So we collect all these early manuscripts of Aunt Martha's uh, chocolate cake recipe, and we find that they're identical except for there are two of them. And one of them, it says, uh, stir and mix instead of mix and stir. And the other one says, uh, adds uh, an extra ingredient, almonds. Okay, there we go. So now, would it be possible to determine what the original, even if Aunt Martha weren't around, what was the original recipe through that process? And the process that that theologians have gone through to, to look at the manuscript evidence, which, I mean, by the way, just in the 1950s, the Dead Sea Scrolls alone, which took us back another thousand years in the history, the manuscript, the way God has preserved his scripture is amazing and amazingly accurate. And we have this concept of the preservation of scripture, the canonicity of scripture, the inspiration of scripture. We also have the clarity of scripture in this passage. First Timothy 4, verses 1 through 2. Uh, the scriptures are intended to be understood and applied because in first in first Timothy second Timothy sorry second Timothy four verses one and two says I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke exhort with great patience and instruction so these words the scriptures were intended to be taught and applied which means that you had to understand them. So they were intended to be clear. Now, we know and we understand that some passages take more effort to study because we've been removed from them by a couple thousand years from when they were written. And so we need to go back and look at the, the grammar and the history associated with them. But, but everything was written to be clear. Scripture is clear. God himself in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 19 says, I have not spoken in secret. 
in some dark land. God has spoken openly and revealed himself, as we said earlier, through a book. Through a book. And therefore, as Luther said, it is to be given chief place above everything. God's word must have first place and the last word in any theological discussion. So we see those, those characteristics of the word of God in our passage, but, but we're not going to focus on those tonight. We're going to focus on the sufficiency of Scripture. And some might ask, well, is a message like that even necessary? If indeed the Word of God is inspired by God and the canon is complete and it has been preserved throughout the centuries and every portion is, is accurate and, and if, there is, if God's Word is not hidden by some sort of secret code but it actually was intended to be clear and indeed it is clear, then why wouldn't we just naturally lift up high the Word of God and say it's sufficient? exposing it to the whole world. And why wouldn't we rely upon it for every spiritual need every day? Surprisingly, though almost every church would claim to have a high view of God's word, in practice, many churches do not. I have, uh, (laughs) at times... You know, and, and I'm sure you've experienced here. I mean, this, I mean, you've got the Bible in your church's name, right? Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield. Seabob, right? I mean, who names their church Seabob? Somebody who wants the Bible in their church, right? And, 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 and so there's no mistaking people. Oh, what are they going to do? It's the, you know, and, and when you think about um, you know, you, you invite somebody to a church like this. And believe me, I, I've been in lots of churches like this. I, I've been here before. I, I know many of you. And, and, and when I've invited people to Grace Church in, in, in Sun Valley, sometimes I've had friends say, oh, man, thanks for that. Well, what do you mean, thanks for that? Another sermon about the Bible from the Bible. What are you talking about? I had one friend say to me, Brian, I... I think you have maybe a different trinity than I do. I said, well, that's interesting. Let's get into a theological discussion. I I like theology. What trinity do you have? Well, he has God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He asked me, I said, what trinity do you think I have? He says, sounds to me like you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Bible. I assured him that I believe in the Holy Spirit, the triune God, the three-in-one. And that Ephesians 1 tells us all about. And see, I can't, I can't, well, I have to go to God's word to actually tell you what I believe about the Trinity. I don't know how to separate God's word from God. If I love him, I, I will love his word. I, I can't just say to my wife, I love you. I just don't ever want to talk to you. I just, that, that's not going to fly. I don't know how to read God's word without thinking about the word. I don't know how to, I don't know how to worship God without thinking about his word. And I don't want to know how to worship God without thinking about his word. It's hard to find a chapter in the Bible that doesn't make reference to God's word. The word word is found more than a thousand times in the Bible, and that doesn't include synonyms like precepts and statutes and teachings and commandments and testimonies and ordinances and the law and the writings and wisdom. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. James 1.22, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Matthew 7.24, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Try to find a chapter in the Bible that doesn't talk about God's revelation. But as surprising as it may sound, there are some churches today that though they give lip service to God's word and say that they have a high view of God's word in actions, they actually demonstrate they have a low view of God's word. And still by way of introduction, if you'll bear with me, let me give you three examples of how people demean the word of God, how they try to diminish the word of God in practice. Though with their mouth, they might say, oh yeah, we believe in the word of God, just like, you know, or, or, you know Orthodox churches. 
So, three different ways. One of them is they doubt its effectiveness. Another one is they add to it. And a third way is they elevate something else to the same level. The first one is they doubt its effectiveness in practice. They treat the word, the word of God as though somehow it's not, it's not powerful enough to draw men to God. So they take it upon themselves to get something else to try and get people to listen to, the God, to God's word. In the 1980s, there, it was popular for churches across the United States to take the basements and you know, they weren't using them and build bowling alleys and start bowling clubs and, and we'll get people to come to church and we'll, during the weekend we'll have bowling leagues and they can bowl for free and then we can slip in the gospel, right? Uh, you know, or, or hey, we're going to have a Hollywood or a, a New York-style theatrical production. It's going to be better than New York and Hollywood. It's going to be amazing. We're going to have live animals in the sanctuary, and we're going we're to, uh, you know, come, and, 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 and it's going to be, it's going to have a chorus line. I may, I maybe not. I don't know. But, you know, the, the, this kind of stuff goes on. And, 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 I think we're kind of past that. I hope many churches are past that because people eventually learned that if you use worldly techniques to try to attract people to come into the church, you end up with a worldly church. And those churches demonstrate that fruit in time. But the prov- so, 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 so people use all kinds of other things to try to attract, almost as though the word of God is not sufficient enough to draw people to Christ. Another way that pastors, churches demean the word of God is they add to it. They act as though they're adding to the words of God in a way that's somehow acceptable. It's hardly even questioned today when a Christian says something like, the Lord told me, or I have had a word from the Lord, or I've been anointed with some sort of a prophetic utterance for you, or God's given me a new revelation. And often, you know, and I'm the worst person for it to hear because I can't be quiet. I, if, I just can't. My wife is, is, is stepping on my toe and holding me back, but I've got to say something. You have a word from the Lord? Wow. Is it authoritative, infallible? Is it, is it, is it, are you talking about something that is, is trustworthy? Is, is it is it as authoritative and trustworthy as the very word of God? Oh, no, not that kind of... Whoa, what kind of word comes from God that's not authoritative? Which God is this? I find it completely dissatisfying that someone could say they have revelation from God that's not necessarily trustworthy or not authoritative. I think they're acting as though they're adding to the word of God and trying to make a new revelation or appear to be authoritative. Another way the Bible teachers demonstrate a low view of God's word is they elevate something else up to the same level as God's word. Um, In the past, pastors have tried to mix secular psychology with biblical teaching and try to be innovative in their approach to truth. This is the problem. This is the problem with preaching the Bible is that you can't really be innovative. It used to be if you wanted to be innovative, you had to be liberal because then the Bible doesn't really matter. You can just be all... But now, even in churches that say they hold to the authority of Scripture, an inerrant, infallible Word of God, slip in teaching that is, that is really adding or bringing something up to the same level as Scripture. They try to. Let me give you an example. There's a current theological trend that maybe many of you haven't heard of, but it's something called the Enneagram. The Enneagram. Ennea is a Greek word meaning nine, and gram is, is a, a word that, that means uh, figure or something like that. So, so, so we've got this idea of the, the Enneagram, and... You, it's, don't look it up right now, please. It, but it's not worth it, I promise. It, it, it's like a circle. It looks like a crown, maybe. It's got nine points on it. Uh, and, and, uh, and if you want to know how a theological trend becomes a theological trend, first of all, look at who's teaching and what they're teaching on and the, the Christian college university circuit. 
And so there are some, some weird, wild people out there that are going and they're promoting books. And then look at the publishers. Right now, Zondervan currently has 30 different books on the Enneagram. And Ivy Press has about 60. One of them is called the Sacred Enneagram, as though it's almost monastic. Uh, even, even though the Enneagram only traces back to 1916, and it was something that somebody admitted as a geometrical design. Somebody else then added nine numbers and nine different personality types, and it became, and it was used in secular psychology, and then in the New Age movement in the 1990s, it became something popular among the New Age movement for personality diagnosis, personality types. Again, I'm, I'm not a fan. Uh, each point is supposed to correlate with a, with a personality type. If you're a one, you're a reformer. If you're a nine, you're a peacemaker. And, they, you know, number eight is challenger. Uh-oh, look out for him. He, he's an eight. That's what they say. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, somehow, Christians in churches are promoting this book. Christian universities, not, not the master's university, but... but, but, but my former university, where I did my undergraduate, where I got my Bible degree from, promotes the Enneagram. The Enneagram. Listen to what one pastor said. This is a pastor of a multi-site, huge church in Riverside, California. This is a series he did. It was a nine-part series on the Enneagram. I, I got to give you this quote. He says this. I just want you to know that about 15 years ago, I encountered this thing called the Enneagram. And for those of you who do not know what it is, it is simply a tool. Let me say this. It is the best tool I've ever found to begin the process of being real with yourself. It helped me to understand my wife. It's helped me to understand me. It's helped me to understand my kids. It has helped me understand people. And it's the first step into understanding ourselves. I just want to begin with a word of prayer. I want everyone to relax. I want you to know that everything we're going to do in this series is out of the Bible, but (laughs) what we're going to do is use this tool to help God begin to teach you about himself. Let me just read that last line. But what we're going to do is use this tool to help God teach you about yourself. So this is the sad state of many churches today. They're treating God's word as though it's not enough. They're adding to God's word because they don't really think it's enough. Or they're elevating other teaching to the same level as God's word. And before we get too upset at others, I think it's important for us to look at our own hearts. Because we often are so tempted to downplay the word of God in our own daily practice. We live in a world where everything in it tries to draw us away from the sufficiency of Scripture. You can say you love the Word of God. You can say your very life depends upon it. You can sing, speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy Word. But if there are days or or weeks where you're not really hungering, For the word of God, this is why we tonight need to be reminded of its sufficiency. And in our passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, we will find three demonstrations of Scripture's sufficiency that should motivate you to depend upon his word more. Three demonstrations of the Scripture's sufficiency. The first demonstration is this. The Scripture is sufficient to save the lost. The Scripture is sufficient to save the lost. Verse 15. Again, though, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14 for context. It says in verse 14, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Middle of verse 15, again, 
Paul mentions to Timothy the sacred writings. He's referring to Scripture, God's inspired word. The word of God is the only source of wisdom that you have that can save you from the wrath of God, which you deserve because he is a holy God and we are sinners and therefore we are in a desperate situation and we need deliverance and the word of God is able to save you. Turn with me to, to, to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's, let's just go back to uh, Ephesians and, 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 and look at some passages in Ephesians um, that remind us how the Bible teaches us who we are and how it is sufficient to save. Prior to salvation, I was dead. I was spiritually dead in my transgressions and sins. There was a... There's a story told about uh, that happened at the Church of the Open Door in Los Angeles many years ago where uh, uh, one of their members had been traveling overseas and he had passed away in France. And because of, it was uh, I think around the 1950s or 60s and, and air transportation, getting a body out of the country, it was difficult to bring him back. And, and eventually they got it back and they had the funeral service on a, on a Saturday. And they had an open casket. And it, it didn't look like him at all. It so happened that they had another funeral from a young girl who had passed away just the day before. That evening they had her service, and it was an open casket. And somebody said, it looks like she's just sleeping, like she's really there. And someone said, the pastor said, yes, though the decay on one body is worse than the decay on the other. They are both equally dead. And the scripture teaches in Ephesians chapter 2 that all of us, prior to coming to faith in, in, in Christ, were spiritually dead. Sometimes we look at other people and say, well, they had such a radical transformation. You too were dead. Your decay might not have been as evident, but it's just as much of a miracle because you too were dead. And, and take a look at Ephesians 2. He says, and you, notice the pronouns here, and you, Paul speaking to the Ephesians, the Ephesians who worshiped the goddess Artemis, who had a temple above their city, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, that you pagans... You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you, notice the pronoun, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, you. No, wait a minute. He changes the pronouns here. How could we? Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We, we, Paul, this is the Apostle Paul, who grew up studying under one of the greatest Jewish teachers of his age, the greatest Jewish rabbis who, who worshipped Yahweh, the true God. He was equally dead because he was, he was, he he was, he says the lust of the flesh indulging in the, we too, verse three, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. You see, you can grow up in church and know every Sunday school, uh, have perfect attendance and know every Bible verse that's signed you, or you can grow up in a church or a family that curses God and is debaucherous and there's immorality and all kinds of terrible things going on all around you. And if you have not seen your sin and the worship of self and not repented of your sin and turned and trusted in the one who could save you, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. I'm lost in his love. Here we are. He, he loved us, but God. And so we have this, this idea that, that uh, uh, he has 
made us alive. The miracle of rebirth is possible because of God. We learn from verses 8 and 9 that God actually gives you the faith. It says, verse 8 of chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The gift of God is grace and faith. It's salvation by grace through faith. God not only gives you salvation, but he gives you the faith. You say, didn't I do anything? Did I bring anything to the table? Yes, you brought the sin. You brought the sin. You contributed the sin. He gave you the faith to believe. He saves you. This is, I mean, just think about as we go through um, this story. This is an unbelievable story. Because God is holy, he is righteous. We know throughout Scripture, in Ezekiel, it says, the soul of him who sins shall surely die. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. You hire somebody to do a job for you, they complete it, they say, where are my wages? This is what I deserve. The Bible says, if you sin, the wages you deserve are death. And the soul of him who sins must die. We deserve eternal... There's not, a, there's not a one of us here who doesn't deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. We don't deserve to be alive this very day. But even in Ezekiel chapter 18, there is a repeated call for repentance. For example, Ezekiel 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Ephesians 2.12, those who, who repent are, uh, those who do not repent in Ephesians 2.12 are strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope in this world. This world is full of people who have no hope because they are rebels against God, they are born rebels against God, and they have not turned from that sin, and therefore they remain in their sin, and they are rebels against God, having no hope. But for those who repent and trust in Christ, they do have hope. Take a look at Ephesians 2, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This story is amazing. He continues to talk about God's gifts and his blessings towards those who believe. And, and in, 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 in chapter 5, skip over to, to Ephesians 5. We've got to get back to our, our passage. But just take a look at Ephesians 5. We have this passage in verses 25 through 27 that, that, uh, that talk about really, uh, they give us, a, it's a message to husbands and it's, it goes back to a, a command to be filled with the Spirit, that is to do what the Spirit would have you do in Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but rather be filled with the Spirit, that is don't be doing what, don't be filled with something that would have you, alcohol is a good illustration because it, those who are filled with alcohol can't do what they normally want to do, that the officer says, Put your hand out and touch your nose, right? You know they're going for the forehead. They're, they're not going to make it. They can't walk a straight line. They're, they're unable to do because they're influenced by spirits, right? But those who are filled with the Spirit, they don't do what they naturally would want to do as rebels. They do what the Spirit of God would have them do. So they follow the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. They follow what He would have them do. They are filled with the Spirit. And as evidence of that, you have... This wives who submit to their husbands and husbands who love their wives. But there's this, but he can't, he can't, Paul can't talk about husbands being filled with the Spirit without thinking about this story, the story of salvation. And so if you, if, if you, if you picture back to a first century wedding, had three stages. The first stage was that the fathers would meet together and make the arrangement. All right? It's a little different now. The fathers find out on Facebook or whatever. But, 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 but the fathers used to meet and make the arrangement. Okay? 
Actually, Facebook's probably even uh, antiquated. But so, so they would make the arrangement. Boom. So here we got it. Okay. And then second, the second uh, stage is they would have a betrothal ceremony, which is far different than the engagement. It wasn't like you walked to the beach and you had a, you know, somebody hiding in the bushes with a camera and all this. You know, uh, the betrothal was, was where the vows were said. Um, the, the, it, was, it was before the families, the rabbi was there, and, and the, the groom would actually say to the bride, you are a wife unto me. And it was so binding that if they wanted to break it off, they had to get a divorce. If he died, she became a widow. It was, it was a done deal. It wasn't consummated. There wasn't the celebration. That's the third phase of the, the wedding. That, that could take place a month, two months, six months, to a year. But on the day of that... There was a, uh, it would begin with the bridesmaids coming over and they would go to the bathhouse or if the family owned a bath in their home, they would do what's called a bridal bath. Today we have bridal showers, then they had bridal baths. And it was a ceremonial cleansing to show that she's pure and clean and they would dress her in fine linen and, 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 and put flowers and perfumes and she would be glorious and then she would wait for her groom, which she's going to do the rest of her life. But she would wait, and, and she would wait. And this is what's happening in Matthew uh, 24, 25, where we have the, the ten virgins who are actually waiting for the, the bridegroom to come pick them up. They, she would wait. And then the bridegroom would show up, sometimes with his groomsmen, and he would procure her from her father's home and parade her through town and bring her to his father's home where he would present her in all her splendor, in all her glory to the father. This is the bride you have chosen for me. Behold. Right? That's, that was the wedding. That was the wedding. Now, now read this passage that we sometimes skip over Verses 25 through 27, Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Paul's talking about husbands and wives, but he can't resist talking about the greatest love story ever told, because that's what he's been talking about through the book, is that a church that was filthy and rebellious and people who were angry against God and who were children of wrath, that is their closest relationship with God was not with him as a father, but with his anger. And now, but God has taken them and through his word has cleansed them and has made them alive and has brought them. And and the presentation here is before the whole universe. Angels long to look at this kind of thing because as far as we know, angels have no way of redemption once they've fallen they're fallen and they saw a man who's fallen but wait who's this bride is this not a great story is this not the greatest story ever told back to 2 Timothy 3 2 Timothy 3 in spite of the fact that this world is filled with those who despise the church, who refuse to repent, who persecute the church, who hate the gospel, who deceive others, Paul encouraged Timothy, verse 14, continue the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are sufficient for salvation. They're the only thing that can save. Second demonstration of the Scripture's sufficiency. The Scriptures are not only sufficient to save you, the Scriptures are sufficient to mature you. To mature you. Verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We see towards the end of this verse four ways that Scripture matures believers. Teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. There's a progression here. Let's just take a look at it. Teaching, first of all. In this verse, it happens to be a noun. Uh, and in this context, it does not refer to the practice of teaching others. It refers to biblical instruction, 
the teaching. Even this word can be translated as doctrine. In fact, the same word translated as teaching in 2 Timothy 3.16 is found in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, and translated as doctrine. Take a look at verse 3 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. For the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching or sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Doctrine is teaching. Sound doctrine only comes from the very word of God. I I don't understand it. I don't understand it when, when somebody says to me, well... I don't like to talk about doctrine. Can't we agree to disagree? Sure. We can agree to disagree if you will agree that doctrine is important because doctrine is teaching. And how are you going to mature and change or even be saved if you're never taught anything from the Word of God? So teaching is important. Now, again, this can be a frustration for theologians. Because in academia and in many pulpits around the world, teacher, he, he, he wrestles with this idea that he wants people to praise him. You see, pastors and professors and theologians, the, the more prominent you are, the greater the temptation to, to, for people to look there, give, their, give you attention tell you how great you are. And so teachers, they are tempted and many of them fail and they become innovators. They're going to be innovative. And this is a, uh, I'm telling you, if your pastor says, well, let's just talk about your pastor. He's not here. We probably shouldn't talk about your pastor, but, <laughs> but, but let's just talk about uh, Steve, right? So pastor Steve, I know Steve. There is nothing about Steve that this world is attracted to. Right? You put Steve on America's Got Talent, he's not even making the first round. But they're not saying, whoa, he's our new idol, American idol, Steve Schwartz. Yeah, we love him. Why? Because everything about him, he wants to point you towards Christ and not to himself. And the world wants nothing to do with Christ. Therefore, they want nothing to do with Steve. But you've got these pastors who want to be fresh and new. If a pastor says, I'm going to teach you something you've never heard before, buckle up. (laughs) Really? In 2,000 years? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And so uh, those pastors, they overlook the fact, those ones that want to draw attention to themselves and be innovators and be, be, I've got this new, new perspective They overlook the fact that God's word never gets old because we cannot plumb the depths of it. Paul cried out in Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Which is why Paul was amazed in Ephesians 3, verses 8 and 9, when he preached the unsearchable riches, the boundless riches of Christ. They're so unsearchable, you can't search them. Charles Spurgeon often challenges people about the kind of preaching that they sat under. He said this, quote, May I beg you carefully to judge every preacher, not by his gifts, not by his elocutionary powers, not by his status in society, not by the responsibility, respectability of his congregation, not by the prettiness of his church, but by this. Does he preach the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? If he does, your sitting under his ministry may prove to you the means of begetting faith in you. But if he does not, you cannot expect God's blessing. The scriptures are sufficient to bring you to maturity because you say, you, say, you say, well, aren't there other means that can bring me to maturity? What about suffering? What about fellowship? What about ordinances? What about prayer? Yes, those can help you to mature, but only when you have an understanding of them that is in line and from Scripture. 
The second way that Scripture matures is not only through teaching or doctrine, but also through reproof. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof. The word reproof here means to rebuke. It's the only time this word, this particular word, is used in the New Testament. It was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Septuagint, but it carries the idea of bringing to light, exposing, convicting, reprimanding, even disciplining. The Scripture confronts us. The Scripture rebukes us. This is why Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 declares, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intention of the heart. As Luther said, The Bible is alive, it speaks to me. It has feet, it runs after me. It has hands, it lays a hold of me. There's an old story about an African chief who went uh, into a village one day, left the village, went into the city, came back with something his village had never seen before. He came back with something that was shiny, reflective. It was a mirror. And he put it on a tree and he hung it for all the villagers to be able to see themselves for the first time with, with clarity. And so, oh, they were fascinated by it. Lines of people, they wanted to do it. But his wife, the chief's wife, hated it. Because for the first time she realized that she was not the most beautiful woman in the tribe, that she was in quite ugly compared to other women. She had never known that before, and so she hated it. And so she decided to do something about it. One day she walked over to the tree and she took the mirror and she shattered it into a thousand pieces. Why? She didn't want to see imperfections in her own beauty. Ridiculous, right? But that's what people want to do with the word of God. I don't want to see my sin. Therefore, I'll stay away from the word of God. I'll attack the word of God. I'll shatter the word of God. I'll demean the word of God. It feels better to not have it around. But those who understand the benefit of rebuke are grateful for it are thankful for it. Listen, if somebody comes to you and says, listen, I'm coming to you, and I know it's awkward, our friendship might be better, I want to confront you, welcome it. Welcome it. People who avoid God's word don't deal with their sin, and people who understand the grace of God should desire to be rebuked. Listen to Proverbs 10, verse 17. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Psalm 141, verse 5. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. Its oil is upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. Psalm 19, verses 8 and 12. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the dippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping with them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. When John Calvin commented on that, Psalm 19, verses 8 through 12, and those hidden faults, He says this, there is not a man who knows the hundredth part of his own sin. How frightening is that? I I carry this quote. I wasn't going to share this, but I I carry this. I've got this little thing. These are my favorite quotes I had for more than 20 years. I don't leave home without them. I remind myself constantly of them. This is Spurgeon. He says, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him for you are worse than he thinks you to be. (laughs) If he charges you falsely at some point, yet be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer for the correction. If you have your moral portrait and it is ugly, be satisfied. For it only needs a few blacker touches and it would be still nearer the truth. Those who have a high view of God's word are okay with being rebuked. 
And Scripture does it better than anyone else. Third way Scripture matures the believer, not only teaching, not only rebuke, but correction. It corrects. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. The word correction here has the word ortho in it. We get the word orthodontist. We get the word orthopedic surgeon. An orthodontist makes your teeth straight. Orthopedic surgeon makes your bones straight, straighter. The Word of God not only points out areas in your life that are crooked, it is sufficient to straighten them out. That's why 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. The Word of God sheds light, but it also corrects. It sheds light. So if you have evil thoughts against someone, or even you've treated somebody poorly, long for the word. If there's currently a lie or deceit, something in your life that you're hiding, that you're concealing, that you wouldn't want anybody to know about, some pet sin that you're trying to to have one foot in the world still and, and the rest of you trying to worship God, if that's what's going on, long for the pure milk in the word. Devour the word so that you can be free from it because Romans 6 verse 14 says, sin shall not have dominion over you, which means that when you are are truly saved and have repented and turned and trusted in Christ's righteousness, you're so overwhelmed with his goodness and grace to you that you're no longer characterized by life-dominating sins. And if you have given your life to Christ and you still have a life-dominating sin that characterizes you, You need to be in the Word of God for fear that maybe you haven't genuinely given your life to Christ or you have not yet believed that sin shall not have dominion over you. Because unless you realize that you should not be characterized by that and you think that you'll never escape from it, you won't. So be in the Word. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And a fourth way that Scripture matures is through training in righteousness, through training. You see, there's a progression here. Take a look at it. Teaching gives you the right understanding. Reproof shows you areas where you need to change. Correction straightens out those crooked areas in your life where you need to be changed, that need to be changed. But training in righteousness takes you actually beyond that. It's like a coach who's going to take you and train you and make you stronger than you ever were before. It's like a tutor who's going to help you excel in your studies. It's the Word of God will raise you up, will strengthen you, will train you in right living. You've got rough edges on your life? Get rough edges on your Bible. Be in this book. Don't just take it and get a grinder. And You know, the more you're in this book, the more your life will change. It is sufficient. It is sufficient to help mature you. The word training here originally meant to bring up a child, but was later used to speak of of loving discipline, commonly used to shaping and molding a young life, cultivating their mind, helping them to set their own boundaries. And notice the focus of the training here is in righteousness, that is to say right living or behavior that God desires. And though we will struggle against sin, and I don't want to give the impression that you will never fight against sin, we will fight against sin our whole lives. We should not have a life-dominating sin that characterizes us. But we will fight temptation and sin, but we can be confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, Philippians 1, 6, will continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. As our Lord prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we've seen the scripture is able to save the lost. It's able to mature the believer. Let's quickly look at verse 17. The scripture is sufficient to equip the servant. 
It says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Timothy, for him, you think this letter here is written to Timothy, right? From Paul. Think about the, 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 the pressure on young Timothy from the Apostle Paul. I mean, just read again what we've already read. Let's take a look at chapter 4. Just look at the first, I don't know, five verses. Paul, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That's quite a tall order for young Timothy. What was his ministry? I mean, how can Timothy, young Timothy with his weaknesses, how can he take the place of the Apostle Paul who was called by Jesus Christ himself? How can he be equipped? He can be equipped Because the word of God is sufficient to equip you for ministry. It's sufficient to equip Paul. It's sufficient to equip Timothy. It's it's sufficient to equip you. The word adequate there, probably better translated as complete or proficient or capable. I like the way the Legacy Standard Bible translated it. It says, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what's going to prepare you for the ministry that the Lord has you here? Why are you here still? I mean, not, not, not here. I'm, why, why are you here? Why are you here on this earth? What is it that the Lord has you to do? If you have repented and turned and followed him, then he has you here to glorify him all the more. And the scriptures are sufficient to save you, to mature you, and to equip you for the work that he has you to do. What is most important in your world? To glorify God. For those of you who have not yet repented, I urge you this day, tonight, if you have any doubt at all whether you've genuinely turned and repented and followed Christ from your heart of hearts, fall to your knees, cry out to God, ask him to save you. Confess him as the Lord of all. And turn from your sin and trust in him and ask him to cleanse you and wash you and to make you whole and equip you for his service. You are either going to be a slave of Christ or you will remain a slave of sin. But do not walk away from here this evening thinking that somehow you are not a slave. We are all slaves in this room. Don't let this world trick you or entice you or dupe you into believing that anything else can be a substitute for God's world, God's word. (laughs) As it says in 2 Peter 1, verses 2 and 3, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we come before you and we are grateful. We're grateful for the faith that has been once for all handed down to the saints. Your truth does not change. Your word is perfect. It is without error. It is inspired. It is complete. It is preserved. It is clear. And therefore, we know it is sufficient. It is sufficient to save the lost. It is sufficient to mature believers and it is sufficient to equip us, your servants. Forgive us. Forgive us, fathers, for times where we have allowed the influence of this world to pull us away from what we know will fulfill each and every spiritual need we have. There is no satisfaction in this world without you. Teach us, rebuke us, correct us, 
and train us up in righteousness through your word. We are thankful for the high place your word has in this congregation. We're thankful for those that you bring to preach in this pulpit. May may that never diminish. And may may we walk away from here only with a greater hunger to be in your word even more. And we pray for your church. Use us. Lord, to minister those to those who are in need. Purify churches that are not focused on you so that they too may glorify you in your goodness. It's in the glorious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.